This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. In this episode, I welcome on Dr. Don Ibsen. Dr. Ibsen is a pharmacist that is out of the Seattle area. She is a professor at the University of Washington and at Bastyr University, also is the owner of two very successful compound pharmacies, Kusler's Pharmacy in Snohomish, Washington, and uh, Clark's Pharmacy in Bellevue, Washington. She was a previous guest on our podcast and speaking to us about low-dose naltrexone. Today, she's coming back to help us connect some dots and find out some solutions for long COVID. We had a previous episode with Dr. Amy Prowell, who helped uh, really piece together what is the underlying process that is going on with long COVID patients and people who are dealing with sequelae from having a COVID infection. And this episode, we went into some solutions that can help people stabilize and perhaps get back to their life and start to repair from the process of dealing with long COVID. And Dr. Epson really feels that neuroinflammation is the underlying process that we need to address with long COVID patients. That's inflammation of the central nervous system primarily. And she has, through her experience working in compounding pharmacy, really wrapped her head around what are some good solutions um, for these conditions. So in this episode, we'll talk about therapies that are available and how they work and what they might do to help alleviate some of the symptoms of long COVID. So I hope this is helpful for many people who are clinicians and people who are dealing with long COVID and that you get some ideas to to help get uh, restored and back to your life as was previously before dealing with the COVID-19 infection. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Ibsen, welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. It's great to reconnect with you again. It is so great to be here. I'm always honored and this is, I know this is going to be a lot of fun today. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'd like to jump right in and talk a little bit about COVID and your experience, you were looking back at March, April of 2020, you were one of the leaders in our community of really figuring out how we're going to respond to this. I'd just love to he- uh, hear your reflection back on that time. And yeah. what, what was the impetus in your sort of call to action? Yeah, for sure. Um, I- I'm blessed that one of my staff mem- made me a memory book. 
of that time because I knew that as we were going through it, it was it was so fast, furious, ever changing, moment by moment sometimes that I knew as we were doing it that I would want to remember these things, but there was no no time for journaling, no time for keeping notes or tracking what we're doing. Um, but I do distinctly remember March 23rd of 2020. That was the day. It was a Saturday, I believe, if my numbers are right. And I staffed that day at, at Kusler's Compounding Pharmacy up in Snohomish, the one that's open on the weekend. And I went home that day and I looked at my husband, who's also our business manager, and I said, we have to close the doors. We have to go closed door because everybody was trying to understand what is it. We didn't have any clear guidelines yet as to how do we think, respond, act. And there were great concerns. There were patient safety concerns of multiple patients in the pharmacy at the same time. Many of them at that point, not masked. Um, there was great safety concerns around. I have, I felt a call to keep my staff healthy so that we could continue to be there every single day to help the patients that were going to need us. So that was like day one for me was that March 23rd. Um, so we made some big changes for a while and we're really trying to follow the science as best we could, trying to see what science was out there. Um, and as we were doing that, you know, the whole thing was always of how do I, as the leader of my pharmacies of both Kuslers and Clark's, keep patients safe, keep keep staff safe, and then what does the community need? And as we were driving through that, um, of course, we were the first pharmacy in Snohomish County to offer COVID vaccinations, very first. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because we had had relationships with our health department for a decade plus at that point. So we knew who to get a hold of and how to respond. And we had done things like this before with like H1N1. So they saw us already as being able to react quickly and adapt. Um, and that was really cool. I'll never forget also New Year's Eve, um, so December 31st of 2020, the, yeah. the vaccine had literally been approved maybe seven days before that. The vaccine was set to show up at our pharmacy on New Year's Eve. Mm. And my entire pharmacy team stayed that night after we closed. We actually toasted with apple sparkling apple cider mm. for pharmacy. Yes. <laughs> and we did our COVID vaccine training and got ready to roll for the following week on on taking care of people that where the vaccine was appropriate, where they had decided they wanted it, where it all fit. And what was super cool there is our first people we were helping were private practice doctors mm -hmm. who were getting turned away by bigger facilities mm. that, you know, we were having healthcare clinics to take care of, of, of healthcare providers for vaccines, but because they weren't tied to bigger groups like Providence, Virginia Mason and all that, they were being told, no, you don't qualify. Yeah. So that we took care of them first. Then the second group that we were taking care of was when senior citizens became um, called to, hey, it's your turn. And partly because the areas in Snohomish specifically or Snohomish County would be long lines, hours of waiting, lots of standing. And so we were helping the seniors who were wheelchair bound, who yep. couldn't stand in a line mm -hmm. and doing that. And then second, third of that was school 
professionals of helping them get the vaccine so that we could get our kids back in schools and, and uh, get them back into some sort of normalcy. So that was the COVID um, vaccine portion. And then we were also along with that, one of the very first pharmacies in our state to be compounding, custom making hand sanitizer um, from ethyl alcohol yeah. and donating it by the gallons yeah. to, yeah, to all of that. So that was kind of my like, oh my gosh, look what we did. It was incredible. Yeah. That, I, I really thank you for your efforts because it was, um, I think at that time, you know, people were very lost and scared. And I think, you know, it's, it's easy to look backwards and make this kind of new reality of what we've all just experienced. But um, the reality of, of that time was, I mean, it was quite scary and mm-hmm. so much uncertainty and to see someone take action and, you know, basically jump into the trenches was, it was really, um, it provided a lot of comfort and safety, I think for all of us. So thank you. Oh, happy to do it. And and one thing that's really important to note, it wasn't alone. I quickly figured out my role was coordinating volunteers. And I had over 50 healthcare providers volunteering time to do this along with my staff. So it was a huge effort and and happy to do it. Yeah. So we're still in this in, in, in a kind of different way. Um, What compared to, 2020, what, how is COVID impacting your pharmacy these days? Like, what do you hear from people? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We, we still have COVID and it's in our communities. It's still at, you know, fairly large numbers, especially if we look back to what we used to think was large. And um, one thing that seems to be a little bit of a trend is Uh, a bit less severity of outcomes for most patients, not all, of course. Um, We still, we have a new normal. Like now I still have this huge sense of protecting of patients and staff. So any little sniffle, tickle illness of any kind is is looked at so differently than Mm pre-COVID, so differently. Um, I think this is true of many healthcare providers before COVID, we just worked. We worked every day. Didn't matter if we didn't feel great. That's what we did. And so we had this culture of like, you show up no matter what. And now we've had to put the brakes on a little bit of, yes, but how do we do that and maintain preventing spread of really any kind of illness, whether it's a cold or COVID directly? Um, So we still see patients that that are actively sick with COVID. And I think we probably maybe always will. I'll sort of be surprised if that totally disappears in, mm-hmm. in my career time frame. Um, but we also now see a lot more patients who just didn't recover like we expected or thought they should. Mm-hmm. And then trying to walk with them and navigate what what is this, have understanding to it, and try to provide therapy and treatment and relief of symptoms and improvement of quality of life. So. Yeah. And I'm curious if that scenario is new to your patient or client population. I mean, it it seems like you've been serving sort of people who have chronic patterns and chronic illness for for a long time. Is this mm-hmm. is this does this have a different feel to it? 
Yeah, it definitely has a different feel to it. Um, their, their symptoms sometimes have similarities. And I think that that's really what we're leaning on right now is because, you know, you're right. I am, I have been in the practice of helping chronically ill patients pretty much my whole career. So MCAS, POTS, um, you, you know, and all, all of those, um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, on and on. And so now what we're trying to do is, well, your diagnosis is not those things, but your disease pattern or your symptom pattern is reflective of things that are within those other, maybe slightly well more known disease pathways. And so then with that, we're leaning really heavy on an area of, of lack of research. And, and it's of nobody's fault. It's just this is new. Mm-hmm. We haven't had time to simmer and sit with it and really learn enough about it to know. So we are needing to go with our knowledge base of these have similarities. Therefore, maybe these types of thoughts and pathways of treatment could prove beneficial to that similar yet different unique patient. And the other thing that's unique too is we're, you know, we call it long COVID or post COVID syndrome, but the patients don't all look the same. There's so much diversity within that group. Yeah. I mean, the symptom list of, you know, kind of the bucket of symptoms, I think is like 200 or so of different ways, uh, the long COVID or, um, post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 is being referred to. Um, that, yeah, so I, I can see that. And um, it's interesting. Do you find that one of those disease conditions is a better model or lens to look through than others? Like I know some people have really focused on that this looks a lot like chronic fatigue syndrome and um, fibromyalgia uh, that we've seen sort of a post-viral syndrome. Do you, do you find that just when you're reading the research or wrapping your head around about therapies that seem to be appropriate for people with long, long COVID, do you find a condition is like your go-to model to look at? Not necessarily, but what I take from that and what we know at this point is this appears to be highly inflammatory. And so if we look at it from this appears to be overall an immune dysregulation and probably very inflammatory based, um, which you're right, that does hit fibro and it does hit, you know, these other conditions as well. Um, But we do know, okay, well, how do you turn down the burn? So how do you turn down that inflammation? There's lots and lots of things that play into it. I really like the bucket or the pot method of thinking about that. Like everybody has a thing of a black kettle pot. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that dip into that pot, COVID virus being one of those things, that then it starts to at some point overfill and, and flow over. So if you start picking away even at small portions of reducing the boil of that pot, you can have a really great positive impact on that patient. It could be things as simple as what what inflammatory exposures are they getting at in their environment? Um, what dietary exposures? And, and I think as we all really know quite well, sugar and dairy tend to be really top inflammatory producers in most people. 
Um, so a, a simple, I know it's not simple, but a change in the diet could have a huge impact. Um, are there supplements that could be used that we know are anti-inflammatory in some patients? So even correct vitamin D levels can be very beneficial. But then if we get beyond that, we start looking at, you know, other, other treatments in that sense. Low-dose naltrexone comes to mind for me really quickly just because we do have decades of experience of that drug um, being really impactful at three or four different pathways. The two probably most important, well, one most important is its effect on microglial cells and helping the immune system to function correctly, which then reduces inflammatory response. So that's a really big one. And, and you know, sort of another one too that sort of comes to mind is methylene blue is being looked at quite heavily as well at mm its effect as a nootropic and reducing brain inflammation because it's so antioxidant. So there's lots of little nuggets of things that we know from other conditions that are symptomatically quite similar to what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So neuroinflammation, um, just from a 20,000 foot view, what, what, does, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so neuroinflammation is when you have inflammation that's primarily located in the brain or spinal cord, and it's usually due to uh, cytokine release, histamines that are there, um, nerve cells that are not functioning correctly. But from a patient perspective, what does that mean? Well, that means that you have patients who are exhausted who are mentally not firing correctly. Um, so it can be everything from, I used to be able to multitask. Now I cannot. Mm. I used to be able to just keep that short list in my brain. I used to be able to recall their name right like that, um, where now they cannot do those things. And it even goes further and it really affects their wake wakefulness and also their sleep as well. So Maybe they used to have all that under control, and now we have really abnormal sleep patterns, which then that becomes a vicious cycle of now we're more inflamed and we're less have have less synaptic connections yeah. and less output available in the brain. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's been a lot of thought about like what what's causing this, what's driving up this inflammation in long COVID, and you know I've seen theories based on you know residual viruses or activation of mm -hmm. previous infections um gut problems circulation problems you know or it could be just all of the above and it's i think it's really interesting for us doctors and researchers and clinicians and providers to talk about this and say oh like what what's the root cause but the same token as you and I were talking about, like people aren't feeling well. So one, they want to start feeling better. And two is like, they might not want to spend three to six months, you know, investing in lab work and other, these other tests and things that, you know, just to kind of, they want to get on their feet. And I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about where you really slot in is like, not only do you have a unique position um, because you're actually offering solutions, but you also see like what people come back for and say, Hey, this is helping. <laughs> I, you know, th this is, this is actually making me feel better, which is really interesting that 
we don't talk about that. Like that would be the most valuable metric <laughs> if we knew the refill rate of yes a therapy. <laughs> yeah, for for sure. And and you're right. I see it. And what's cool about the compounding pharmacist perspective is I get to work with hundreds of doctors like you doing really great work out there and with little bit different tweaks to approach at times. And then I work with their patients and I, and my job as the pharmacist is yes, to customize, make their medicine, but also to try to carry through the messaging that you're giving the patient to try to help them with their best therapy. So counseling, expectations, side effect management, all of those things. But you're right. The number one thing that I get that maybe you don't have as direct feedback on is, are they refilling it? And at our pharmacies, some of the things we do is we actually reach out to patients when they're past due on refills and do a check-in. How's things going with that medication? And we learn a lot sometimes. We learn about things of, well, I had this question and I just didn't get around to reaching out to you or my doctor. And so I quit taking it. Okay, well, then I get to talk about that and figure out why and is it is it appropriate for them to restart? Do I need to help communicate back to the doctor? What's going on? Um, But yeah, I get this inside view of we start this maybe more novel approach to try to treat or, you know, improve quality of life. And the did it work? And oh, cool, it did. So now I can help spread that word back out to this is some other things that you might want to think about. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, and there's also, you know, so much, so many layers to whether a therapy worked or didn't work, you know, to think about like the right dosage, the right form, what mm-hmm. other health conditions are they dealing with? Um, so, but it's just yeah. such a great position, you know, for you to kind of really see and, and observe and gather mm-hmm. data. Um, so a lot of patients who are dealing with, long COVID. Um, I mean, their life has turned upside down. You know, people who never have had a chronic illness and all of a sudden, you know, within a matter of a year, a year, all of a sudden they're, they're dealing with this thing where they can't get to work or they've had to leave their job. And I've had people get fired from their jobs because their performance or they weren't able to attend, um, you know, attend work uh, on a regular basis it's it's a problem that I think would be best served if clinicians knew some early wins that they could help people with, you know, like, yeah, like early, just stabilizing treatments. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in your, in your formulary of things that you work on, can you kind of give us like a sense of what that, what some of those might be? Yeah, I'm happy to. And, you know, as I was thinking through this prepping for today, I, I really probably, I always like a short list because I, I don't think, I think too much becomes too much. Yeah. And these are already patients that are extremely overwhelmed, yeah. right? Extremely overwhelmed. Um, low-dose naltrexone. I mean, honestly, like we, I just did a testimonial recording with a patient um, who's in my community. I ran into her at a holiday thing. We were just casually chatting and... She, she shared with me, you changed my life. I'm like, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, I had COVID and I had all these other things going on. It affected my liver, my gallbladder. I had no energy. I couldn't take care of my kids. 
let alone run my business. And luckily, I had a great doctor who suggested I try low-dose naltrexone. And I said, tell me more about that. And it was within, for her particular situation, within days that she started to respond. And I'm like, oh my gosh, people need to know this information and they're not talking about it. Because there is, come, having suddenly a chronic disease when you were a healthy person before is very hard. You, you do have to go through like a grieving point and there's some self-consciousness to it. There's denial. There's all these other levels. And it's not until I think people finally go, okay, fine. I've got this thing. I'm not going to let it identify me. I'm going to work to figure out how to fix it that we can suddenly start getting to that next state of, okay, let's start doing some things about this. And so for me, I have to say, I mean, I feel like I beat Lotus Naltrexone, you know, up and down the block and I've talked about it for years and years and yeah. years, but this is a different use and purpose for it. And it makes sense because this is a condition of inflammation. It's a condition of immune dysregulation. And yes, you're right. A lot of times these patients now they had COVID and all of a sudden, guess what? Epstein bars back or these other really chronic underlying things that were stable or kind of laid latent within the body that weren't really affecting them that are now the big deal. And so my thing with low dose naltrexone is I've never ever in my 20 year career seen it ever hurt anybody when taken appropriately. Never, yeah. never, mm -hmm. ever. The only two patients I've ever seen have significant medical problem with it were actually patients where I talked to the doctor and said, I think this is not a good idea because the patients were on chronic opiate therapies. Right. They ended up withdrawing and they had to go to the emergency room, you know, that, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But other than that, other than those literally two patients, it's, it's always just a matter of did it work? Yes or no. And how helpful was it? Okay. So mm -hmm. to me, if you can have a drug where you know you won't hurt somebody and it just might change their life. That's a great combination. And the other thing that goes with that is unlike a lot of like the immune modulator drugs and the prescription things like that, um, this one is so much less cost burden to patients than any of those more typical pharmaceutical type drugs. Mm -hmm. So I like that combo. I love in pharmacy, I love low risk. I love affordability. I love patient access. Mm -hmm. um, I think dosing, we're still trying to get our head wrapped around. So we're going with the really traditional normal dosing patterns of start low, increase slow over time. Um, and then with that, you just sort of go by how they tolerate it. I have talked to some patients in my follow-up calls where it's like, uh, I think we went too high too fast for you. And then I really like getting a hold of the doctor, bringing the conversation together and say, hey, you know what? Let's restart. Let's go slower. Because I do feel like sometimes these patients, even though before we would say, oh, they're not sensitive, they are now very sensitive. And less sometimes is more in that group because we don't want to overfire the immune system. We don't want to overstimulate it and we want to make sure we're really being cognizant of inflammation. So I love that one. That mm -hmm. LDN, I think to me of like, if I had a person who says I've got a condition of some sort of high level of inflammation, that's my first, have you tried LDN? 
And if, yeah. and if they have and they didn't get the outcome they wanted, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Probably my number two right now, and um, it's a little bit newer in therapy, so would be um, methylene blue. Mm -hmm. It's not a new drug. That drug has been around decades mm -hmm. for sure. And I would say probably 15 years ago when I used to work with it a lot, it was primarily for the use of bladder situations, so mm -hmm. interstitial cystitis, which is an inflammation condition of the bladder. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of patients, one of which is still a dear friend and patient to me, um, where methylene blue was literally the one therapy that would calm her bladder down. Mm. And so I'd worked with it before, but for other reasons, and then started to do more research on this is being looked at differently. The dosing is different, um, but how it can be brain protective. And there's some beginning stage research occurring currently looking at methylene blue for prevention and treatment of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, well, what is Alzheimer's? It happens to also have this huge inflammatory right. component of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so that's another one. Now, methylene blue, it is a drug that we do have to have a little bit of caution on, I think, from a pharmacy standpoint mm. of it's dose by weight. So it's not a one size taper go like mm. we're used to with LDN. Um, and it also um, is an MAOI inhibitor, which mm. means it does have drug interaction potential with medications that, you know, are commonly used in the United States, such as SSRIs and antidepressants. So there's a little string of caution there. Um, but on patients, when I've seen this be helpful, it's typically something that within weeks, the brain clarity, the fog starts to lift, likely due to the anti-inflammatory proportion and brain protective proportion of it that we can get some good clarity outcomes from brain function. Hmm. Yeah, so I remember hearing about uh, methylene blue just from various circles within the long COVID world. And I I don't know why, but why, why is there such a resistance to it? Like it seems mm -hmm. to have like a, a pause and is it just the MAO inhibited, inhibited effects or is it some other aspects? Is it the way it was first used? I, I'd love to kind of like uh, get some of that out in the open because yeah. I'm hearing some great stories great uh, results from it but i think there's just kind of just a uh a adoption resistance of that therapy. yeah it here's my thought on it one is yes we got to watch we got to watch out for drug interactions but we do that on drugs all the time yeah um i i feel like methylene blue had became sensationalized really quickly and like, if you go on Instagram, you type in methylene blue, you get all these reels of these really, you know, cute beach body people with yeah. blue tongues because they're doing drops of methylene blue and kind of making it a, a rage, so to speak, where the people you see doing this are clearly people who therapeutically probably don't need it. Yeah. And the reason they're doing that is you can technically go on the internet and just buy this stuff. Now, I, being a pharmacist and really scientific-minded, I definitely do not agree with that. And here's why. It took 
the FDA back in the day when I was helping bladder patients, it suddenly became unavailable. The FDA was not allowing clean pharmaceutical grade methylene blue into the country of the United States. So it became Mm -hmm. unavailable, flat. It took me over a year of working with all of my really good FDA licensed and inspected suppliers to be able to get a good, clean version of methylene blue into my pharmacy. Mm. So all this really cheap, easy access stuff is two things. It's dye grade, which is supposed to be used in treating fish tanks Mm. and often is laced with lots of impurities, heavy metal impurities, Mm. which you and I know we don't like heavy metals. Right. (laughs) Highly inflammatory. And so, but it's because you could just Google it and it'd show up at your door and everybody in the world was playing around with it, which then led to people having problems and side effects and not getting good therapy out of it. And I really think it's because the dosing is wrong. The purity is not right. It's laced with stuff. It's not pharmaceutical grade. And therefore our outcomes and our, I call always call them case studies, ends of one, our individual patient responses have not been a hundred percent positive because mm-hmm. you start talking to people, oh, I already did methylene blue and it caused these problems. Well, here's probably why. Okay. And it seems to obviously work on neuroinflammation, oxidative stress in the brain. Do we know how it works? Uh, do we know more mechanisms than just sort of the effect? Yeah, a little bit. It, it gets down to the energy producing cells of the, of the body and specifically of the brain. They're called mitochondria. Mm-hmm. And when, a, when, a, when mitochondria are not working well, honestly, it, it could cause end of life in some people. And I remember when I was a young pharmacist back in the day, we would actually work with uh, brand new babies and, and children who were diagnosed with mitio, mitochondrial defect. And we would do all sorts of things like compound um, coenzyme Q10 and all these really great antioxidant preparations to try to feed and help support the mitochondria. Well, methylene blue is kind of doing that too. It helps support the energy production, helps support mitochondrial and to increase NAD production. And NAD is is the substance of life, so to Mm -hmm. speak. And so Mm -hmm. that's the pathway um, primarily. And it does this through a complicated mechanism of inhibiting, you know, this one specific enzyme producing system within the body, but it's working on mitochondria to increase energy. Okay. And do people generally take it for a short period of time or is it a, kind of a ongoing therapy? Yeah, we're really learning that still. Um, all of the research and studies that I have read myself so far are pretty limited in length of time, three to six months. I think six months might be the longest one I was able to uncover and look at. So um, unlike LDN, where patients would take that chronically, and we know that that is good and safe, I think we're still learning on methylene blue. And I think always the goal with any therapy is take it, rebuild the system, recover, and try, you know, we don't want people on medicine for life. Um, So that would, I would say, I would recommend using caution for super long term at this point until we know more. And really with that too, probably monitoring effects of the drug therapy to learn as much as we can too. Um, It is renally eliminated, hence why you know, when you take methylene blue, your urine is blue to green yeah. um, during that time period. Um, but I do kind of wonder, do we need to have caution with 
long ter- long term use and renal effects and long term use and effects on serotonin levels within the body and is is there any buildup my sense is we probably are in a good safe dose dose range based on the dosing that's being talked about because like the alzheimer studies they're looking at 300 milligram mm-hmm. which is in my mind that's a really big dose and most of the time with methylene blue for nootropic effects, we're looking at things between 10 to 30 or maybe up to, I think I've seen as high as 90 milligrams in a day. So mm. quite a bit lower, um, but I, we, we have a lot of learning to do yet. And, and I think because of that, patients should not self-medicate, self-treat. They need to be followed and monitored yeah. for that. Yeah, it reminds me of situations like this where we use nootropics or we're, you know, really kind of getting into altering brain inflammation. And do you, do you see sometimes that people get manic or get like a little bit of almost too much stimulation um, where they may feel mania or have sleep problems if once these therapies are on board, is that, is that reasonable? I mean, I think theoretically it's something we watch for, but I, I can honestly say with methylene blue, with the dosing that I'm currently seeing, we are not getting that feedback from patients of, of any concern. And even that even includes our patients that are being prescribed to take it twice a day, hmm. um, that they seem to still maintain good, reasonable sleep patterns. I've not seen or had any um, underlying psychosis issues arise from like underlying bipolar, underlying yeah. schizophrenia. Um, my own personal experience in taking this medication, um, I did. Ben- I do benefit from the clarity it provides, but. Mm. I don't go to the sense of like feeling wired. Like, you know, sometimes you take a stimulant like caffeine. If you get too much caffeine, you just feel really buzzy and, and wired and then can't sleep. That's, that's definitely different. It's not, um, it's not a stimulant in that effect. So even though we may be getting more serotonin levels, I think at the dosing we're using, we're just not bumping it high enough to probably clinically have an impact. Yeah. You know, it's exciting to learn about these therapies because, you know, we, I'd say in the last four years, we've learned that there's this whole detoxification system in the brain, the glymphatic system. We didn't really know about that um, up until four years ago, you know, that there's like this waste, that accumulation in the brain that needs to be drained and empty, just like our liver and, uh, you know, the gut. And and so it, it's, it's really it makes a lot of sense that if inflammation is kind of stuck and there's accumulation of waste products that if you're able to provide some reduction in that um, and help the brain clear out, um, you know, some of this inflammation it makes a lot of sense. You know, um, I just think we, we can no longer think of the brain like we used to, right? It's, it's so much more understanding since we learned about the glymphatics. Do you, do you, do you think about the glymphatic system? Like, is that something that was new to you or were you just sort of, did you just figure that was like, of course there's a, of course this is there. It's just wasn't discovered yet. No, no, I think, I think you're right. But if, and it's that hindsight 2020, right. Of looking back and going, Oh, that makes so much sense now. Like Mm. think about, um, Oh, this is a good example. When people decide I'm going to go gluten free, like I feel like this is not healthy for me. I'm feeling like I'm getting effects from that. 
and then all of a sudden they, you know, cheat or dip into gluten or whatever it might be, one of the first symptoms they get is headache. Yeah. Headache and brain fog, and it and it lasts for weeks, and so yeah. that there says so much about detox pathways, and you know, and I deal with that too within the hormone replacement world of things. Of you can get patients, you know, doing hormone replacement therapy with really good, right products, right doses, but if they're if they're not processing and if they're not having, you know, fecal movements every single day and getting these things cleared out of their bodies, of course, they're more inflamed. Of course, they t feel terrible. And right. sugar is another one that easily does that where you can have a patient like who's maybe not believing you and you get them to try this little experiment short term. They feel it right away. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I get it. I get how inflamed I am and what that means. So, yeah. And you know, I think the brain is so sensitive to all of this. It's, um, it's probably, you know, the most sensitive organ if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes I think because we need our brain so much, we really notice those impacts more directly than say, if it was liver or, you know, another organ where it just kind of is in the underlying clearing mode mm -hmm. of brain, you feel it brain if something's wrong with your brain you're tired you're not functioning correctly you're having headaches you're having visual disturbances and so when you talk about quality of life that's a really important organ to try to mitigate problem and help with so that we can get people back in jobs and back taking care of their kids and doing their normal things so yeah yeah so with ldn we see you know sort of a shift in the immune system, kind of a dampening of some pro-inflammatory cytokines. And and uh, with the methylene blue, we see more of help with mitochondria, and which helps with redu reduction of oxidative stress and other components. So those are two nice layers, I guess, you know, to kind of start off with, with the the long COVID brain, I guess, you know, as far as like what people are dealing with in the central nervous system. Um, I know you use a few other therapies, like kind of your, on your short list, what other things would you say are good angles or good additions to take? Yeah. So another one that really comes to mind, it, it's a compounded nasal spray with um, a proprietary base called synapsin in it and typically paired with like methylcobalamin. Um, so synapsin is a blend of the ginsenoside RG3 and nicotinamide riboside. And it has to be the riboside because it has to do with bioavailability. Um, those are also that combination is it's kind of like LDN and methyl methylene blue combined in the sense of helps with the immune process of the brain, but also helps with the NAD production or energy production of the mitochondria. Yeah. And then the, the reason we typically will put like methylcobalamin or, or vitamin B12 in the methylated form in with it is that specific nutrient has been highly linked to, um, with deficiency, higher ranks of Alzheimer's and dementia. So you're supporting another pathway of NAD production by adding mm -hmm. that into it. Um, of course, in my mind, like if you look at from a patient compliance standpoint, especially within the U.S. culture, we love pills, right? So anytime yeah. it can be like an LDN or a methylene blue in a capsule form, 
that's really easy for us to accommodate. This is a nasal spray, which the benefit of the nasal spray is you are getting more direct delivery of medication up closest to the brain as possible and have that mucosal absorption available to make that bioavailable. Mm -hmm. There's anything we take by stomach, it goes through what's called a first pass effect, which then it's metabolized, then it goes into your bloodstream, then it goes up to your brain and you finally get the benefit or the effect. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like those a lot. Um, from a clinical standpoint, I am still seeing ivermectin being used. Um, and to me, it's, it, I think it's just a lot of unknown and we don't know for sure. But when I think about a drug from a safety profile, I did a deep dive, dive into ivermectin several months to a year ago, even probably even more than that. Now time flies and was like, okay, we are seeing this being done. Is it safe? And so what I was able to show is that with the dosing range being appropriate by patient, that ivermectin for most patients should be very safe and well tolerated. We just, and I honestly counsel my patients that it's experimental and we just don't know. Um, I know that the last study that came out with ivermectin in acute disease of COVID showed no benefit. And I don't disagree with what that data said, but I also wonder if we just haven't hit the metrics of study design appropriately yet. Yeah. And, and that's the part where I think most of the studies that have been produced have been done through big hospital organizations. Therefore, these are t- probably mostly patients who have had disease for a while and then finally ended up in a hospital versus I don't know that we've seen a study yet of being able to address the patient in a very initial acute phase of disease process and mm-hmm. look at what that outcome shows versus more of a hospitalized patient outcome. Exactly. So yeah. my opinion on that is to be continued. Um, I think if it's done safely and appropriately that um, outcomes are good. I do have very big concerns about people sourcing this on their own from right. horse medication um, because I grew up as a farm girl and horses take huge doses yeah. because they are huge beasts. Right. <laughs> and a little is a lot. Yeah. 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 I really appreciated the education you provided on ivermectin and, you know, uh, just like echo the effect of that. I've been sharing with people that they, they don't want to wait to take their COVID therapies until they're two or three days into something. It's like, Right. You know, they should have everything ready to go at home. Um, so when they, when the earliest symptoms and, the, you know, then they start supporting their body, you know, those, those initial moments are, I think, really important with these therapies. Um, yeah. And I have seen them really help like right at the beginning. Yeah. And, and uh, we can't discredit all of those patient cases of, this happened. I did this 24 hours later. My outcome was that Yeah. we just don't have enough of those case ends of one to make that final yeah. call. And that's a really hard thing to study. It really is. I mean, how do you yeah. gather people within the first 24 hours of a yeah. prodromal kind of symptomology? It's, it's very difficult, but you know, it's, uh, it's another tool. And, you know, I think there's a lot of them coming out, you know, um, and we're just learning more and more about our immune system, if anything, 
you know, about like yeah. what needs to happen in those early phases? What immune system cells do we need to support? Um, when, when it's progressed, what do we do need to do next? Um, yeah, I think we've just learned so much, but, uh, yeah. And, and we're going to continue to learn because let's face it, there's going to be variant after variant and they all are slightly different. And we've even seen that with some therapies that early on drugs worked, you know, better than others at certain early on variants. And then, lost their thunder, lost their mechanism as that virus mutated and changed. And that'll be something we forever chase probably. Yeah. Yes. I'd love to hear more about um, Custler's and Clark's and just kind of like how you like to interface with patients and doctors and just kind of what you guys are up to these days. I mean, being from this area, you guys are the, you know, the main go-to. So I know of you well, but like just for some listeners to kind of learn about you, that'd be great to hear. Oh, sure. Of course. And and I thank you for that. That, that really means a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm a compounding pharmacist and I've had the privilege of doing compounding pharmacy, custom made medicine, functional medicine for over 20 years now. And I do own both um, compounding pharmacies. I own Kusler's compounding pharmacy in Snohomish and it's licensed to serve Washington patients and we ship all over the state of Washington and work with all sorts of doctors in the state. I also own Clark's compounding pharmacy. It's located in Bellevue, Washington, so a suburb of Seattle. And we are licensed in nine states and primarily so that we are able to expand our reach and help other like-minded doctors and patients in, you know, some of the neighboring states such as Oregon, Idaho, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, um, and I believe we're also licensed in uh, New York, Minnesota, and Florida. Hmm. Um, I think I got that list right on my brain. So what that means is if patients live in those states and if the naturopathic physicians are co-licensed in Washington, so say you're in Oregon, ND, you would have to have Washington licensure also, and we can help those patients in Oregon as well. Um, Other types of practitioners... PAs, ARPs, MDs um, do not have to have dual licensing. It's just a weird Washington thing. Um, but what we are is we're a non-sterile compounding pharmacy, which means we don't do any injectables of any kind. Um, mm-hmm. That's not my passion. That's not what I am really wanting to do. And therefore, I, I stay in my lane of what I'm really good at and what mm-hmm. we really are passionate about doing, which is helping patients with um, hormone replacement, with chronic disease, um, with really unique thyroid disorders or autoimmune conditions. Um, we do a lot in the dermatology world also, oh, yeah. which is kind of interesting and neat. And then with that, um, you know, I do get the privilege. I get to teach and uh, at a couple of universities, local UW, University of Washington, and Bastyr University. Mm-hmm. And I love doing things like yeah. this and interacting with doctors. And I love going into their offices and teaching them and helping them and doing big presentations nationally as well. Um, so I get to I get to wear a lot of hats. Yeah. But with that, it fuels my soul and yeah. makes me feel complete. So. That's great. Yeah. 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 And patients, patients are welcome to call or reach out to our pharmacy anytime. Um, we've been a lot more active in the last, since COVID. Yeah. It's been in, in, um, on like Instagram and Facebook. And so we try to put out some really good, solid content on those platforms for patients, but they're also always welcome to reach out and talk with our pharmacists and doctors as well. Um, we, we like to see ourselves as friendly pharmacists. So we're here to help help be a part of that triad relationship of doctor, patient, and a pharmacist and keep patients safe with drug interactions and clinical questions and drug questions. So Wonderful. Well, I would love to 
finish up by just hearing, you know, some parting words about like if, if there's someone out there that's um, been dealing with long COVID, say for three months or more, yeah. um, and kind of words of insight or inspiration or, or encouragement that you could provide would be really helpful. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So the first thing is, is if you've had COVID and you're not recovering like you think you should have from this virus to don't ignore it. I feel like the sooner that a patient gets on this pathway and starts um, taking care of the inflammation and these other conditions that maybe arise, the better the outcomes. I feel like the longer I see a patient sick, the harder it is to get them back to where they were. And so with that, what that means is, number one, reach out to your doctor that you already have a great relationship with and see where their knowledge base is and see if they're able to help you. If they're not able to provide much more to you, that's when you need to start reaching out and look for um, a different approach and look for some, some providers that have really spent some good time and education in being better, well-rounded in this area. And I know, Dr. Randy, you are very passionate about this. So I know you're a huge mm -hmm. resource source to our community on that. Um, and, and then from there, you get to work with a team and you have a team approach around you to help you navigate this and that you're not alone. There are a lot of patients that feel just like that patient and we are here to help. Great. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree that um, sometimes we have a tendency to explain away symptoms and and things like that. And, um, just, you know, sort of think it's going to go away, um, you know, or it's just something that's going to pass. But, you know, if you keep saying that to yourself over and over, it's time to pay attention, you know, and, you know, reach out that someone's not going to dismiss, you know, what you're going through and take it seriously. Um, people, uh, yeah, you know, like you said, it, it's, it's uh, establishing a team, but um, it's really great. And uh, I, yeah, I, I just can't thank you enough. Um, it's, I think getting, having you in the community gives us a lot of confidence to move forward into areas that um, we otherwise wouldn't. And they've, they're always, you're always, you always put safety first. And I really, really respect that. Um, you do your homework, you do your research, you, you don't roll something out until you've really um, kind of investigated and you get quality products and quality sources. So it's, it's really um, gives us confidence. Thank you so much. That means yeah. a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. And thanks for being on with us. And I guess, uh, you know, catching up with you down the road would be great. I mean, yeah. every, every couple of years, it seems like there's some more, more and more to talk about. So it's wonderful. Yes. Keep, keep in touch. And I know we'll do great things together. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Wild. If you liked the episode, please feel free to share it with your friends, neighbors, loved ones, anybody who you might think be, might be interested in this topic and tune in for future episodes and also for our future podcast guest. Have a good one.